you're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled Navigating Your Career as an Open Source Journalist. The talk features investigative reporter Brenna Smith talking about her journey from student at the Human Rights Center at Berkeley to award-winning journalist with the New York Times Visual Investigations team and beyond. The stage talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella on the Bellingcat Discord server on September 29th, 2022. Thank you so much for coming to today's stage talk here in the Bellingcat Discord server. It is Thursday, September 29th, 2022. I'm really happy to see you here. Um, we've got a really great guest this week. Uh, it, this is, I'll introduce him in a second, but this is somebody who has tons and tons of experience working in the open source field as a journalist in different institutions. And um, I thought that she would be a great guest to have uh, talk to us about those experiences because, again, they've been really varied. And, um, you know, she's just had a, a really uh, impactful career so far. And, um, um, yeah, that's why I, I asked her to come. So just before we, we get started on the talk, a couple of things here. If this is your first stage talk that you're listening to here in the Bellingcat Discord server, we do about two or three of these a month. Usually we'll get somebody who is like our guest today, somebody who's been around doing open source research in different capacities at different places for a while. And uh, they come in and they give a, a talk about their experiences. Um, the great thing about listening to the talks live is that you get to ask questions to the guests. So uh, our guest today is going to talk for about half an hour, and then we'll have a moderated Q&A at the end. So uh, I invite you to ask your questions in the channel, which is called, uh, where is it? It is called Stage Talk Chat. So at the top left of your um, Discord browser, you should see where it says the stage. That's where we all are right now. There's a channel called Stage Talk Chat. I'm going to send a message uh, in there right now. Post your questions here. So as Brenna is speaking, feel free to chat in that, in that channel there and uh, ask questions. And then at the end of the talk, I'll read through the questions and then Brenna will answer them, okay? So... Um, thanks again, all everybody, for coming. I think that's the only announcement that I wanted to make about the Stage Talk chat channel. Without further ado, then, I want to introduce our guest for today. Uh, her name is Brenna Smith. She's an open source researcher. She's a graduate of the Human Rights Center at Berkeley. Brenna has had, uh, as I said, a really impactful career in different organizations. She has done work uh, on uh, cryptocurrencies um, with Bellingcat, so she's published uh, with us. She used to run a newsletter um, that was all about cryptocurrencies and tracking transactions on the blockchain. She has also spent time at the New York Times Visual Investigations team, where she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize. So I'll say that again. Brenna Smith, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist is here with us today okay. uh, from, the visual, <laughs> from the Visual Investigations team at the New York Times. Also uh, has, uh, has spent some time at USA Today, also working as an open source journalist. And then most recently, um, Brenna has joined the Baltimore Banner, which is a, uh, a media outlet out of Baltimore in the United States, where she's now using open source research uh, uh, techniques to investigate uh, municipal, local matters. And so 
Again, we're very, very lucky to have Brenna Smith with us today. Thank you so much, Brenna, for coming. Um, I will now turn over the microphone to you. And uh, thanks again for being here. Oh, thanks, John Carlo. That was very, very nice of you to say all that. Um, hi, everyone. I'm super excited to be here. Um, I am also learning a lot about Discord. This is kind of my first time <laughs> really using Discord, which is embarrassing because I used to report on crypto and this is where like crypto people live now, but it's been a couple of years since I was on that beat. So forgive me for um, not, for being excited to be here because I haven't been on crypto or on Discord before. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, I guess I can start kind of talking about how I got here. It, it does go all the way back to college. Um, I went I went to UC Berkeley where, you know, John Collo mentioned I, I worked, um, I was a student investigator at the Human Rights Center, um, which was kind of one of the first of its kind in college to basically be training college students in these techniques and we would investigate specifically like human rights abuses and war crimes doing it. Um, but even before then, when I was at Berkeley, I worked at um, the college paper, the Daily Cal or the Daily Californian. And when I was there, um, I worked there for about a year and a half, and I was an assistant news editor at one point, which was during the 2016 election, which was wild because then, you know, Trump won and there was like anarchy and like chaos throughout Berkeley and Oakland and the rest of the country. And so I spent a lot of time running and covering protests and getting video. And that was kind of my first time dealing with anything visual. Um, and, you know, I had always been really interested in journalism. I'd always really liked it. I had always knew I wanted to be one. Um, so in college, I tried really hard to get an internship in journalism at like a professional journalism place that was not my college paper. Um, and I couldn't get one. <laughs> Nobody was hiring me except um, I did get an unpaid internship at a news nonprofit where the first week I was supposed to start writing for them, everybody got laid off. And then I was like surrounded by the best journalists I knew and all of a sudden they didn't have jobs. And I was like, well, okay, maybe this isn't like, maybe I can't do this if like the best people I know all of a sudden don't have jobs now. Um, why do I think that I can like survive in this like horrible, brutal industry? So then... I didn't, you know, I kind of was really scared to think about journalism or do it for the rest of college. So this was the end of my sophomore year where I had that traumatic internship. Um, well, it, I mean, for a week and then I was, it was, it was a news nonprofit that was trying to be started in a bigger nonprofit. So like a bigger nonprofit was funding it. And then the bigger nonprofit decided randomly one day that they didn't want to anymore. So then I became a social media intern for that larger nonprofit when I was no longer like a journalism intern for them. Um, and so after that, I kind of got, I wouldn't say lost, but I would say I tried a lot of different things. I, you know, got a communications job on campus. I um, started working with um, a student like startup that was supposed to be making tools for open source investigators called Archer. That's um, no longer around, but it, it was a really cool like enterprise that you know students on campus were starting and they were all engineers and um, I think a lot of them were intimidated by writing and so I was kind of brought on to basically like do a lot of communication stuff for them like write the copy for their website write the copy for how they would describe their products that type of thing and um, I also was one of the few people at Archer who 
didn't make the products. Like I didn't know how they were made. So I would kind of be their test monkey a lot of the times to try to see like how a typical investigator, whether they're, you know, a journalist or doing, you know, government investigations or whatnot, like how a lay person would interact with their tools. Um, and so I had a lot of fun doing that. And I, I really enjoyed kind of wanting to become you know, doing investigations in general. So I thought, okay, I want to become like a researcher and investigator. And so then um, totally through connections, clarifying this being the entire time in college, I was a social work major. So I had never taken any sort of like international relations class, really. I was not like well-versed in anything to do with like topics revolving around a lot of what, you know, OSINT is now today. But um, I through a friend had had an internship at a think tank in DC where she worked with a former CIA analyst who used to do um, illicit finance investigations and now he was working at a think tank and he had an internship uh, program. And so she just suggested I um, get interviewed by him. And again, I had no business, I, I, like I wasn't an econ major. I you know, hadn't really taken any econ classes. I think I took like econ 101 because I had to for a prereq, but like I didn't, like I didn't, I was not <laughs> well versed in the topic at all. I hadn't taken any international relation courses, um, but my boss then, or who, who would sue me, my boss, Yaya Fanuzi, um, used to be a middle school teacher and he um, really likes to take people who wouldn't have traditional like investigator paths and would kind of kind of give them a chance to you know do it so i got the internship in dc um, that summer and that was when i was first introduced to the concept of cryptocurrencies like at all and so again just like reiterating like i really had no business being there and i was very aware of that and incredibly insecure about that so when we had other interns um, with us. I basically tried to overcompensate for the fact that like, I didn't know what crypto was until essentially I walked into that internship. Like I, I had heard about it and stuff, but I really didn't understand it. I like went balls to the walls reading and trying to understand and like spending time outside of the internship, really trying to get what crypto is. And I started to really like it. And also all the extra legwork I did, even though it was only a three month internship, you know, really paid off because I kind of got like a crash course of what and how to understand cryptocurrency and then how to begin investigating it. And I really liked it. And I really liked investigating. Um, I really liked doing finance investigations. I really liked, you know, Yaya was really good also about teaching us about the public records component of that, how to look at, you know, different countries' public records, what it means to look at incorporation records, property records, that type of thing. And it was really fun. And I totally felt like a detective. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be like a researcher and investigator in some capacity. So I left that internship and started my senior year of college. And that was when the first time I had joined um, the Human Rights Investigations Lab, which is still like my biggest regret from college is only having a year doing that. I wish I had done it, you know, as long as I could in college. Um, I don't even think it got started till my sophomore year, but regardless, I wish I had done it way longer than just two semesters. And so I started at the HRC and I was like, okay, I want to go work at a bank. Like I have you know, I really want to do illicit finance investigations. This is super fun and cool. And um, yes, this this will be my job. I'll figure it out. And um, I didn't figure it out. No one was hiring me. I spent like 
seven months of college applying to all these random banking jobs like AML, um, specialist jobs or, you know, suspicious activity report things like I, I would apply to anything that had to do with a financial institution and investigating illicit activity. Never got, never got hired, never got interviews, anything like that. But I would have sometimes people email me and be like, yeah, so like it's it's great that you have all these skills, but like you're a social work major and you don't have any sort of like government clearance. So why don't you either like go work for the government or go to grad school and grad school for like the actual topic that we <laughs> you would be working in. And then um, you can come back and, you know, maybe you could get a job type thing. So it was kind of discouraging, but I wasn't giving up. And, you know, the Human Rights Center has like a really longstanding and, and relationship with Bellingcat. Um, you know, Bellingcat trainers often come to the lab and other places in Berkeley and do trainings, like how John Carlo and I met later in this long spiel. But um, at one point, Eric Toller was on campus doing a training. And one of the directors at the HRC connected us because Eric used to work at a bank doing one of the investigator jobs that I was interested in. So I got coffee with Eric and was telling him, you know, I want to work for a bank. I want to do all this stuff. And he was essentially saying the same thing as everyone else, which is like, LOL, you're not going to get hired. Like, I have no advice for you. Like, you'll never get through the initial screening for HR. Why don't you, you know, the same thing, go, go get a master's degree or go work for the government if you can get like a security clearance. And, but then he was kind of like, oh, but like, tell me more about like this crypto stuff, you know, more about, obviously Eric already knew like a good amount, but he was just like, tell me about like how you've been investigating it. So then we nerded out for a little bit. And then he went, well, if you ever want to, you know, write something for Bellingcat, like we, you know, we'll take it. And that was like, my jaw dropped. Like I never thought, I never thought I would like write for Bellingcat before, you know, especially at the human rights lab where, you know, we were doing open source investigations. Bellingcat is like on par with the New York times for us, how students talk about it. Like it's, it's, you know, something that is really revered. Um, and so I, I was shocked and you know, I was like, oh my God, this is like a dream come true. And then Eric was like, you have really boring dreams then. And I was like, shut up, Eric, this is really exciting. Um, so I ended up writing an article and sending it to him like a week later. And it wasn't any sort of major investigation. It was just a guide on how to get started in doing open source crypto investigations, um, which is something I tell people all the time when they want to either break into journalism or any sort of OSINT space through writing is you don't have to like come out with this giant blockbuster like investigation. You can, you know, you, you, you can just start small and you don't even need to do things that are have investigative findings always necessarily you can you can do guides and then start kind of building from there so i did one training guide about how to um you know find uh crypto currency address that's related to i think the case study the case study was grew agents from a molar indictment back in 2018. um so how to like track down those transactions and find the addresses related to them and then after that i did a guide on okay so now you have an address what do you do to try to figure out who might be, who the address might belong to or what's behind it? And I did that using a case study of terrorists. Um, I think like, I, I would describe it as like terrorists basically using cryptocurrency to crown fund their efforts with like um, the Al-Qassam brigades, Hamas's military arm, 
posting on Twitter and Telegram different cryptocurrency addresses to have donations to. And then how to kind of look into that and see what institutions are helping them, um, what institutions are helping them use these addresses and funnel money and, and potentially who's also donating money to them. So I did those two guides first and they went over really well. Like there was a pretty interestingly large appetite for cryptocurrency open source investigative skills. Like it was something a lot of people were interested in. Um, so Eric and the editor at the time, um, Natalia were like, okay, if you have any more pitches, like if they're good, let us know because like this is something our audience wants. So then I did my first kind of investigative piece for them about how terrorist financing with regards to cryptocurrency has changed over the years. That went over well. Um, and then after that, I, you know, because of my Bellingcat articles, I got reached out to by um, a private research firm that I would go on to work with for the next year and a half. Would see my Bellingcat articles and they were like, oh, we're looking for like an entry level investigator position. Um, you can still freelance on the side and stuff like that. We know you want to be a journalist, but think of this as like getting hired to go to journalism school. Oh, I guess I should say also by this point, I had decided I want to be a journalist again. That like, I really enjoyed freelancing for Bellingcat. I really enjoyed seeing people interacting with my writing and my reporting. And I was like, okay, I want to become a journalist again someday, somehow. And so I wasn't for a while still. When I was working for the private research firm, I was still a researcher, but I would work like, my nine to five um, doing my job. And then at night I'd work from like eight to midnight doing freelance things that were still, you know, I always, I was not a journalist. I always identified myself as a researcher because I had a day job. But um, I would, you know, at, at that point, because there was such a large appetite for crypto content, when I had floated, floated the idea to Eric, like what if I started a newsletter and it could kind of be like a news roundup about what's going on in the crypto world, especially with how it intersects with open source investigations, but I could also do little blog posts about whether it's an interesting new finding or whatnot. And so I did that, it was called CryptoSent, um, and it you know, also did really well. Pretty soon we had a couple thousand subscribers for it, and um, I started doing that for about a year. Every week I would publish an article with a digest of news, things to read, and then a little blog post about any sort of rambling I had or investigative tip I had. Uh, but it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work and it was great and it was fun and it was it was really useful in me getting um, kind of noticed, I would say, in the OSIN space, especially just being affiliated with Bellingcat at all. Um, but working a day job and doing that, and I was also doing some like freelance research projects occasionally too, it just got really tiring. And then the pandemic hit and I think like everybody else, everybody kind of reevaluated their lives for a second and was kind of realizing their mortality more. And I just kind of realized, you know, I, I know I have a lot more clarity. Like I know I want to be a journalist. I know I want to go and write more and I want to do investigations. I want to be an investigative reporter. Um, so how am I going to do that? So then I started reaching out to people um, who I knew in the journalism space, including, and this is why nothing, you know, even if something doesn't work out how you think it should, it, it still can pay dividends later, which is that my old boss at the internship where everybody got laid off except for me and, you know, I didn't get any, you know, reporting articles out for it or any clips um, was then now, uh, now she's like an executive editor at USA Today, but she was a managing editor at USA Today. So I called her and she recommended I apply to their internship program and that there was an internship on the investigations desk, which is, you know, another instance of, you know, connections being, you know, something that was crucial to my career. 
um, which is something that I think also if people who have gotten far, especially in a place like journalism, are transparent about that, like, it, it, unfortunately, like, it does matter who you know, and it does matter to, like, try to um, talk to people about, you know, making sure certain people know you and know your work. And I think that that's, you know, it, this is not a full meritocracy, um, unfortunately, though I will say if you don't, it, you know, it, it is, if you don't do good work, it's, it, it is harder to get ahead here, but sometimes doing good work isn't enough. You also have to network, which is kind of a sad reality of this industry and I'm sure many other industries. But anyway, I digress. So Kristen um, recommended I apply for the internship. I got it. Um, so I started working for a couple months at USA Today, but in the meantime, I had also applied to the Visual Investigations Fellowship. I never thought I'd get it. Like, I was planning to have it just be like, I'll apply this year, but I was plan planning to apply for like the next as many years as I could. Like, I did not think I would get it, but, um, and I also had like stalked on Reddit their like application process time, and usually people knew by like November, even if they got it or not. And I hadn't heard, oh no, they know by end of December, I should say, sorry, if they got it or not. I think you apply in November. Because I remember I was doing something for the elections and I it was like the day before the elections or the day of the elections that we had to get the application in or something like that. Or maybe it wasn't due, but it was recommended, it opened around election time and it was recommended to get in as soon as possible. Which, you know, I still think was a cruel thing to do to journalists, especially since so many people were covering the elections. Um, so I applied and I hadn't heard back by the time that I knew other fellows had in years prior been told they even, you know, got an interview or had the fellowship, let alone if they got an interview. So I totally didn't think I got it. And then in end of January, um, I got a call from a Times recruiter that was like, hey, they're going to interview you. Um, and I was like, amazing. To be clear, I had known, so Haley Willis on the Visual Investigations team, she and I were at the Human Rights Lab together. We, we went to college together. Um, so we knew each other. You know, Christian had come and done trainings at the Human Rights Center, and he and I, he had seen that I had done Bally Cat articles, so he, he had met there. Maliki um, Brown, who was basically like the founding reporter of Visual Investigations, had come to the Human Rights Center also to do um, for a journalism conference at the Berkeley Journalism School. So I very briefly met him there. So again, like I knew at that point, like almost half the team and not, you know, it, it, what I'm saying to that is not necessarily because that means, you know, the New York Times is a place of if you're not good enough just because you know people, they're not going to take you. But what that did mean was because they knew me and I, you know, awkwardly dm them and was like hey like i applied just so you know they at least took the time to look at my resume which is truly half the battle in a lot of these things um so i applied and let them know that i applied um got the interviews eventually got the fellowship which was like un like i never thought that would happen it was it was like a dream come true it was amazing um and then i you know a couple months later moved to new york um, finished up my internship at USA Today, and then um, started a year-long fellowship at Bellingcat. Um, it was interesting because at USA Today, I was on the investigations team, and I, I didn't. I, had, I think I had like five articles I did with them, and they were all kind of more like a couple week-long investigations. But what was really cool was I would spend a lot of my time working on, like helping do supporting reporting for months-long investigations that came out later including some really incredible work looking at illicit massage parlors around the nation, um, police whistleblower retaliation, um, 
different things like that. So I really got, like, again, kind of like a crash course in journalism. Like, I got really, really comfortable um, looking into legal cases. I got much more comfortable. I, I'd done public records things before, but getting a lot better at fighting for public information and that type of thing. Um, so that those were all really useful things to be walking into the Times with. And then I had... Um, a year with the Times, which was a really lucky year to have the fellowship, I would say, because like John Carlos said, a lot of OSINT, but specifically the visual investigations team, I mean, they're it's basically conflict reporting. It's, it's, it's a huge international focus. They also have done amazing national reporting, but most of their interest, I would say, is on international topics. And so uh, from 2021 to 2022, which is when my fellowship was, there was both the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan. There was also um, the Ukraine war that broke out. And so it was just a lot of news and a lot of, you know, images to verify, videos to verify, um, questions to answer with open source investigation techniques and stuff like that. So um, that was really lucky because I got to kind of hit the ground running. Oh, and also like the second day of my fellowship or something like that, the president of Haiti was assassinated. Like there was just a lot of news. So it was, I did a lot of breaking news, which is incredibly useful, especially as a young journalist to just learn how to report and write quickly and well. Um, so then after that, I also then, but so how do I describe this? Um, after Haiti, but before Afghanistan, I was put on a project that was the police um, traffic stops project that John Carlo was referring to before, which was a larger investigation that the investigations desk at the New York Times was doing, which is different than visual investigations. They're like the print investigations desk had created a database of hundreds of fatal traffic stops and they were doing reporting on it. And so then um, my colleague Robin Stein and I were the first assigned to the project and we would just spend, you know, hours and hours watching images of how these fatal traffic stops went wrong and ended up becoming six months worth of reporting on that project, um, almost six months at least. And um, so it was interesting to be in a space where I was on this longer term project, but then when Afghanistan happened, I kind of had to wear both hats of still like, you know, spend time working on this longer term investigation, but then also um, doing Afghanistan reporting. And that's part of the reason why the team dynamic at BI was so important, which is like, you know, I was able to kind of take a little bit of the backseat on a police traffic stop story. And Robin was able to do a lot of reporting on it. And I think by that time, Haley Willis had come on too to do an, the story with us for police traffic stops. So then Haley and I kind of had to like tap out for a second and Robin kept the reporting going. And then we were able to tap back in. Um, and that investigation was really amazing because it was such a collaborative process across the newsroom. And it was just, you know, a really massive effort that especially, you know, managers, like high up editors throughout the paper were really putting resources into. Um, and so something that was happening while Haley, Robin and I were watching the videos is we kept on saying like, yes, police lives were in danger before they shot people in traffic stops, but like also like they're the ones who step in front of the car or they like put their bodies in the car or they, you know, ran up to the car or, you know, grabbed onto the car while it was trying to flee, like all these things. And Haley had been prospecting before and she was like actually there's a term for this it's something called officer created jeopardy where officers like put themselves in danger and um that it's like a poor training <laughs> like it's it's not supposed to happen 
And so that became the basis of our project of looking at all these videos of fatal traffic stops and seeing how often they had instances of officer created jeopardy, which, you know, it, it, or at least instances of officer created jeopardy where it led to a fatal, where it was the, how would I describe it? So it's like when officer created jeopardy happened and put their lives in danger so that it necessitated the use of force. But officer-created jeopardy can happen at any point throughout, a, throughout a, a traffic stop. For example, just because an officer walks in front of a car or stands in front of a car during the traffic stop does not mean that it's going to put their, it does not mean even though that they're necessarily going to be having to like use force or anything like that. Um, it's kind of like, it's like basically doing poor policing techniques that can more unnecessarily put you at risk but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to be like the worst case scenario of you having to like shoot a driver just because you tried to get in the car or things like that um so we did that reporting and we rolled out that article with the rest of the newsroom's investigative pieces on it and it was really amazing too because um, i found out that like one of the investigation desk reporters steve eater who was working he was like one of the key leaders of this project and he lived literally like two apartment buildings down on my block when I lived in New York so like we got really close and like he has like cute two cute pugs and a super awesome wife and a really cute baby so like you know I babysat his daughter I hung out with his dogs we'd go on walks like I really felt like the entire fellowship for me was basically remote so I felt really grateful that I was still able to like meet people and, and make friends um, during the fellowship. So then after um, police vehicles happened, after Afghanistan, we were all kind of, um, and, and also during that was um, Afghanistan was when my colleagues on VI did the incredible uh, couple drone strike reporting and then continuing drone strike reporting with Asmat Khan at the Times, which also won a Pulitzer. Um, and so that was really cool to see. Like, I wasn't personally involved in that reporting, but it was really great to at least have, like, kind of like an, an ear to the door while they were happening or while that was happening. And so then um, after that, everybody was kind of like, okay, that was the big news event for the year. Now we can kind of go do off the news investigations or more enterprise stuff. This will be cool. And then um, Ukraine happened and our lives, you know, became constantly like everybody, a lot of people in the ocean space, including Bellingcat, verifying images of this war breaking out. Um, and we would work we were working around the clock. We were sending people to different parts of the country so that they could be awake to verify more imagery. I mean, there was just, it was like trying to like drink through a fire hose. It was just so much was going on. And it was, again, like really key to start getting really good on like geolocating on dead deadline, writing up a news brief on deadline. It was, it was really useful. And um, it was also kind of weird because like I started reporting on like a, uh, I was the 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. shift. So I was the overnight shift essentially. And then by when I went to sleep, the people in London or Berlin would wake up and do the rest. So it was um, really amazing um, to have that experience, but it was also really tiring, like really tiring and really draining. And I know Giancarlo had a really amazing thread about um, what traumatic imagery does to you um, and Similarly, he'd kind of talked about how looking at, um, oh my gosh, am I over 30 minutes already, Giancarlo? Do I need to stop talking? No, no. I'm so sorry. Uh, let's do, I mean, you can do maybe 10, 15 more minutes max. So we have 15 minutes-ish for Q&A. Okay. 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 Sorry about that. Sorry, no, guys. No, no, don't, um, don't apologize. No, this has been fascinating so far, Brenna. Thank you. 
Thanks. Um, and so then um, the imagery that affected me the most, um, there would be a lot of stuff going on where you would see images of children talking about the fact that like their dad or something like that was like staying back in um, Ukraine to fight and that they were fleeing the country with their moms. Like anything to do with just like children in Ukraine talking would like make me a puddle. And so it was definitely, I would say, like the most intense experience I had had with traumatic imagery really affecting me. And so um, it, it was something that like, I think I honestly still am dealing with um, even after the fact. And it just kind of underscores how important trying to get therapy and help when you're dealing with vicarious trauma is. Um, but also during that, I had gotten a tip from a source that one of her fam a source I knew from like totally like from my, you know, when I did crypto reporting, like we were not like I was not, you know, she was not somebody I knew because of the Ukraine war. She was a totally unrelated way that we knew each other, but she was Ukrainian and one of her family members had been taken hostage in an apartment building. So she called me like very upset, like 1030 p.m. one random night and was like, is there anything you can do? And I kind of was like, I mean, I will definitely look into this for you. I have no idea. <laughs> like, like, I really can't make any promises, especially because my team's mandate is that there has to be visuals involved. And like, this isn't an innately visual story necessarily, but I, if I can't do anything, I'll be sure to try to pass it along to somebody else doing reporting who doesn't have to have visuals. But it turned out that when she gave me a couple people's numbers to call who were either um, had fled the apartment building or knew her family member and that type of thing, and they were like, oh, actually, we have this group chat for our apartment building that's everybody's, you know, everybody has access to the security cameras around the apartment building. So we're able to like see footage and we were able to see footage at like all these different angles of Russian soldiers, you know, coming in and invading the apartment complex. And so then it was like ding, 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 like this is a VI now, like we can do this. So my amazing colleague, who's a, a freelancer with the visual investigations team, her name's Masha Froliak, who's um, doing some of like, the most incredible and groundbreaking reporting out of Ukraine right now um, with VI. And she was on the ground in Ukraine at the time. And so she and I partnered up and, you know, I, I could do some janky Google Translate discussions with people um, over, you know, messaging apps and stuff like that and i was i was able to obtain the videos that way but when we started having more and more people escape the apartment complex and we needed to get you know in person or not in person but like actual people's testimony about what happened masha was critical and being able to navigate interviewing people who had just been through severe trauma and doing that with empathy and grace and also getting really amazing details of what happened and so that ended up being um, I mean, still one of the stories I'm most proud of that came out, it was more of like a narrative piece of describing with the visuals of showing Russian soldiers invading what that was like for the civilians living inside. And it was really great. It was like a front page story for the New York Times. And it was it was still something that I just had. I was really proud of it. And after that experience, I was like, okay, that, like, this is what I want to keep on doing. This type of reporting, like having people be at the center, but the visuals are investigative evidence. Like what job will let me do that? And I was very lucky um, that, you know, VI is very, very hot right now in journalism. They're the cool kids of journalism. And like everybody, a lot of major national publications want to start doing the same thing that VI is doing. So when I was leaving the fellowship, um, you know, 
it, I had a good amount of interest job-wise and a good amount of even, even offers. Um, so I was really trying to think about my next steps. And I, I, I loved my experience on VI. I'm, I wouldn't have my career without it. I'm really grateful for it. But I also wanted to do things that was both a little bit more narrative, like a little bit more people-centered and also not necessarily so tied to breaking news. Um, and so when I would talk to other national publications that were trying to build out a team like VI, um, they wanted to do exactly what VI was doing. And, you know, they, they wanted to compete on stories and things like that. And I kind of wasn't interested in that, um, especially because at that point I was still like so tired after the Ukraine war. And then there was a startup called the Baltimore Banner that, you know, I um, had been kind of talking to already, but then after that hostages piece came out that I did, they were like, what if you just did that, but here and about Baltimore news? And it got me really excited because, you know, I, earlier in the discussion, John Carlo and I were talking about how open source investigative techniques are typically got in like conflict reporting. That's how that type of journalism gets done. And a lot of people weren't trying to apply those same techniques to local news. Um, and now as I'm in this job, I'm realizing there's a reason for that because it's really hard. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to, I wanted to do that. Like I wanted to do something really different, even if it meant I wasn't at like a fancy national publication, like it, it felt much more exciting and fun to me to be trying to break new ground in this field. Um, and so it'll still remain to be seen if I successfully do it or not, but, um, it's been really great trying. And like, I think that we already have some projects in the works I'm really excited about. I've done already kind of one. I've been here for two months for Clarity, uh, for Clarity, but like I, you know, have done kind of one mini VI where this one um, woman who I, I met on a totally different reporting about um, social services benefits in the state, essentially being a mess. She'd had her benefits stolen and the state wasn't doing anything to figure out who stole them and how she could get her money back. And so she herself started going around and calling stores to try to get footage of the people using her benefits. So then um, she and I started going and driving around to the stores and we got footage of the same people at the same time for the same amounts down to the cent um, of when her benefits were stolen. And so we got it from a couple different stores and we were able to um, put that together again as kind of a narrative piece where the visuals are a key investigative finding, but it's not necessarily this classic OSINT um, complex geolocation that solves the puzzle. It's um, a kind of different, my, my mandate now that the, 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 the barrier I need to cross to do investigative work with visuals and with any sort of like open source investigative reporting is my bar is that the visuals have to be key investigative evidence. They can't be wallpaper. They can't just be there to be pretty. They need to be findings in and of themselves. And so, you know, being at the banner, like I do not have the resources anymore that the Times has. This is not, you know, this is a, this is a startup. This is not the same operation, um, but it's still really fun and kind of scrappy. And, you know, we're kind of making things up as we go along. Um, so yeah, that's kind of basically where I am now. Wow, Brenna, thank you so much for that. Um, I uh, so folks, I, I know Brenna. I, I, we were just talking before the talk uh, began that you know we've been keeping in touch with each other uh, over the last few years now because we met in twenty nineteen, right? Brenna? I did twenty nineteen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. we we met then, and then yeah, when you were at Bellingcat, we yeah we you know we were friends, and then 
since then we've been keeping in touch. But hearing you talk about everything that you've been up to uh, since we met in person is is really fascinating. So thank you so much again, Brenna, for um, for coming in here and talking to us about this. I see that folks have questions already, which is really good. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start throwing questions at you, Brenna. And if you're listening, okay. uh, you can ask your question in the Stage Talk chat channel, which is located just right above this um, uh, Stage Talk uh, stage, which is what this is called where we are right now. So I have a question here from um, Marmalade. And Marmalade asks the following question, Brenna. Marmalade asks, how do you balance covering heavy topics in uh, a way that does justice to what's going on while also knowing that it has to be made into a story? Um, I mean, it's hard. I think the biggest, most important thing with this reporting, especially because when you're looking at, like when I was verifying imagery from Ukraine, it's really easy to make it like this like dopamine like puzzle to solve and when you solve it you're like yes I rock I did it and then you realize that oh my gosh that's actually an image of like somebody's house getting blown up with a missile right um and so I think my guiding principle with that is to think about the people involved right so like who are you writing about okay so how's that affecting their lives what does that mean stories are really hard narratives are really hard and the, I think for me so far the easiest way to find them is to just think about truly like, okay, what does this mean for the people involved? What are they going through? And then you can kind of go from there um, and hopefully find a narrative that way. Yeah, thanks for that. It is it is really difficult. Um, and I think that example that you just gave Brenna there is um, is a really um, important one. One about the, 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 ultimately it's you're watching somebody either die or have the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Uh, on a video, right? And right. I think um, it, right. it it's like all the more difficult, I think, at least when you're doing it at a distance, like there's something about doing research on a place that you've never been to and will never go to that that even makes that process all the more kind of uh, distant, right? So it's, it's it's all the more difficult. I think if you're if you're like actually on the ground talking to people and you're you know you you're there, then then you have a sort of a stronger connection in a way to the place. But if you're doing it from your computer, then the danger is all the more pronounced. I think that um, that uh, you're not going to balance that correctly. A, there's a question here yeah. from Robari. Thank you for that question, Robari. I'm going to answer it because I, it's 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 a really good question, uh, but it's super broad. So I'm going to answer it in text uh, later, Robari. Um, I'm going to ask a question now here, uh, uh, Brenna, because I think that there was a couple of points that you made that were really, really interesting. And again, uh, folks, I encourage you to ask your question in the Stage Talk chat. Um, we're now in the Q&A section of the talk. My question to you, Brenna, is this. I, I have a couple. Um, so you, one of the things that you said was that um, when you... So really, your first step into the open source research field was learning about cryptocurrency, right? And you made a point that you didn't know mm -hmm. the first thing about cryptocurrency. Like you, you didn't know anything about it. You had this interview that you had to prepare for. And you said, well, I can't go in there not knowing, <laughs> not knowing what this is. So I have to read up about it. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about like, what was that, what was that moment like when you said, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to, for the first time in my life, Google cryptocurrency, because I need to learn about it because I'm going to do an interview about it. And potentially this is going to be my job. Was that intimidating? 
Um, was it exciting? What was that first step like when you decided this is the thing that I need to read up on? I don't know anything about it. I need to learn as much as I can about it now. What was that like? You know, I mean, it was not exciting. <laughs> it was terrifying because I was like, you know, I wanted a job that summer. And I was also like about to graduate college in a year and needed to think about like having a job period. So I was really not excited. But, um, and I really, and this was kind of like the only interview I got. So I was like, this needs to work. This has to work. <laughs> like, like I have no other options type thing, which now like looking back being like, that's totally not true. Like it is okay not to have an internship every summer of college. It is okay to be figuring things out. Like it's really not that big of a deal. But at the time, of course, it felt like a huge deal, even though it's not. And I think that the, actually a really great thing that was happening in my life was I was taking this intro data science class and it was like literally the first time. I had done something STEM-like since high school, and I really enjoyed it, but it was really hard for me, but I kind of learned about myself. It helped me develop this muscle a little bit, which is really important for OSA and journalism in general, in any hard problem that you're solving. It's, it's that if you're willing to sit there and sit with this discomfort of not understanding something and being willing to like be persistent and work hard until you do understand it, um, you can do a lot of things and you will eventually like if you just keep on trying to solve a problem you'll do it and that's why like i think a lot of people will always be like oh how do you what's what's the best tool for os and stuff what's the best tool or the quickest way to geolocate and it really it's both practice and also just being willing to sit in that discomfort of being like i have no idea what i'm doing and i'm going to try to understand this and i'm going to try to keep on reading as much as i can until i understand it and that's basically what i did um and now that's something that like I always try to push myself whenever I think like and, and I don't always succeed at all. Not not I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm somebody who like is so good at like this self-control, but like I'm not. But I try to always be like, OK, this makes no sense to me. This document doesn't make sense to me. This story doesn't make sense to me. I want to like run up and go away and watch Netflix and not deal with this. Um, I feel like that all the time, honestly, with writing. Like, I like I will procrastinate a lot if I don't want to write a draft. And instead, I'll be like, no, like, in order for this to be good, in order to figure this out, I just have to sit with it and be uncomfortable and just focus on trying to figure out what I need to figure out. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, one of the questions that I get a lot is, um, is how do you decide? You know, people say, I want to get into, into open source research. How do you decide mm -hmm. a topic, right? So I think it's really good for you to, to, to say that, well, you know, sometimes a topic kind of comes to you and, it, and, and sometimes it's scary and not fun <laughs> to, to like become an expert in something, right? Um, so that's yeah. a really good insight there, Brenna. Thank you so much. We have a, a bunch of other questions here in the chat. Uh, thanks to everybody who's contributing here. This is a, a really good one here, uh, Brenna. This is from Garadur, and Garadur is asking, do you have to deal much with imposter syndrome? Is there a point where you step from, I know nothing about this, to I can write an article about this without a tangible scale to measure your progression against? So maybe you said another way, you know, talk to us about imposter syndrome. Uh, do you get that? How do you navigate that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Every day still, all the time. Um, all, 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 all the time, majorly. I, I don't know how to emphasize it enough. Um, I think that it's also like particularly women and young women struggle with this, but I think anybody would like, it's a lot. Um, and so I think that how I go from, I know nothing about this to I can write a piece about this, like how I, I don't always successfully do this, but when I am, the biggest thing I think 
it, with imposter syndrome, that's the biggest issue is it puts you in the equation. Like it put, it, there's a focus on you when you're trying to do your work. You're also having that voice in the back of your head. That's like about you, whether it's, can you do this? You need to do this. You need to do this well enough. Like you're not focusing on the work. You're also focusing on like yourself and your anxieties and your relationship and adjacent to what this work means to you. So my biggest advice and something I work on every day is to just like literally like take yourself out of the equation and just focus on the work. Like focusing too much on having a specific agenda. Like I think that's something I struggle with a lot and there are some journalists who can do this, but I am not successful if I just sit there in my head by myself without trying to like read and learn more and try investigating something like outside of myself. If I just sit in my head and I'm like, I wanna find this huge investigation because this will mean this for myself type thing. I'll just sit here and try to like think through a massive, incredible, impactful accountability story, which is like not really going to happen unless you get out of your head and get into work. So I would say the biggest way to focus on imposter syndrome is to just not think about yourself and just think about the work because there is a difference. There's a difference between yourself and there's a difference between what you're trying to do. So if you're able to just focus on what you're trying to do, you'll have much better outcomes than if you're also trying to focus about what you're trying to do and what that means in relation to who you are. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I, um, I'll, I'll add a little bit there. I, so I think imposter syndrome, as you say, definitely impacts um, uh, people differently. Um, as a, as a, you know, a, a white male, I don't get it as much as I would imagine as, uh, as you say, as a young female journalist. Um, I, I, having said that, I did spend the first like two years of my of my time at Bellingcat just convinced that Elliot and somebody else, other people were going to find out that they made a mistake by hiring me, and that I, like <laughs> I really had that like I believed that I really thought that I thought is this the day that they're going to say oh my gosh somehow in the hiring process we made a mistake we should have thrown out this guy's CV but somehow it ended up in the in the uh, you know the offer pile and then he's working here um, and then that point that you made there at the at the end Brenna was really good too because I, I always think. I mean, I still have that, that feeling, like imposter syndrome a little bit, not as much as earlier, but I, I, I'm, I'm a, I think I'm afraid of a time when I wake up and I go, yeah, no, I know what I'm doing. Like, I've got it all figured out. I think if I ever yeah. wake up and I feel like that, I'll be like, no, that doesn't sound right, <laughs> right? Like, it's probably better to be a little bit, as you say, hungry for knowledge and improvement as opposed to being, no, I got it all worked out. I don't have to, I don't have to work hard because I, I figured it out, right? Um, right, right. Yeah. Eva, we got another question here, Brenna. Um, and it's uh, from T-Rex. Hello, T-Rex. Thank you for coming to the talk and for asking a question. The question is this. Brenna, you talk a lot about the crushing grind of the deadline. Can you do this kind of work without that pressure? Uh, yeah. I mean, okay, so yes, you can. Um, I think I also, I'm like one of those many people who TikTok has convinced has like undiagnosed ADHD. Um, so I definitely am the type of person where I'm like a container in the sense of like, I will fill the space you give me. And I kind of need that little bit of like urgency or um, frankly anxiety to perform. So I think a lot of journalists thrive under deadline because it makes them work. Whereas sometimes it's harder when you don't have a set deadline and you can have months to do something, you're not going to work 
consistently as hard every day always and that's okay too like i think the 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 grind of deadline is not always sustainable especially if you're trying to do investigative projects like there is a lot to be said about being able to come at something calmly with a cool and collected head and try to look at nuance but i i think that deadlines are important and are useful to me as a person but they are not necessarily something that is like the mark of a good journalist or like something that is necessary like a tight deadline is not always necessary at all to do good work um, most investigations are not something that you want to put a tight deadline on in fact so um yeah that's, that's kind of i'm still figuring out that balance for myself yeah and maybe famously i don't know about famously but okay i'll, I'll tell you folks uh if we ever announce uh if bellingcat ever says on twitter the big investigation into X is coming out on Monday. What we actually mean is that it's coming out on a Monday, not maybe the next one, but maybe like six months <laughs> down the line. Like that's kind of a running joke. Like anytime we announce like it's done, it's coming out tomorrow, it's actually not. So deadlines, at least at Bellingcat, are famously kind of movable. Um, so yeah, I guess it depends on, on the place, right? I, you could have an editor who's like, no, this is immovable. The, the one thing I'll say, maybe you've had this experience too, Brenda, is like once you get other organizations like partnered with you, then the deadlines become more kind of serious, right? Yeah. Uh, because yeah. it's like, well, you know, we can move our deadline, but if we're working on a project with like the New York Times or whatever, well, they're setting a deadline that we have to kind of meet that, right? So it, it can get a little bit tricky, yeah. Um, I, I got another question here, Brenna. Um, this one is uh, from, from me, as other folks are now... Um, uh, but by the way, lots of people are responding very positively to the talk on imposter syndrome, because I think it's one of those things that everybody feels. But one of the side effects of imposter syndrome is that you don't like to talk about it, because then you'll give yourself away as an imposter, right? Uh, so it's right. always encouraging to hear people say, no, I got it. And like, everybody got, got, everybody's got it. So yeah, if you're listening to this, and you feel like an imposter, we all do, don't worry. Um, okay, here we go. One from JJC. Hello, JJC. Thank you for this question. The question is this, Brenna, fascinating talk. Do you have any advice for striking a balance between work and life? I love my job as an open source researcher at a news organization, but it's a job that asks a lot of us in terms of long hours and exposure to traumatic content. How do you strike that balance, Brenna? Yeah, John Marquis. Hi, John. Sorry, I'm just, I'm looking at the chat now too. Um, it's hard. I mean, it's something, it's a constant struggle. I think that I, I got some really good advice actually the other day from one of my co-reporters here at the Banner. His name's Tim Prudente, which is that when times are slow, like when you are not under a pressing deadline or you don't have a lot to do, come late, leave early, be like, you know, let yourself have that free time. Don't try to play the game of still looking like you're coming in late and staying late when you actually don't have a lot of work to do. Like if you don't have a lot of work to do, take advantage of that. And, you know, I think that there's also a lot of times this perception that if you're not constantly killing yourself and doing the most, that you're not doing your best. And I don't think that's true. Um, I think that well, I, walking away, like I think somebody just talked about like, you know, what happens when you hit a dead end. Like it's still the same thing of like walking away way and doing something other than work can like make your brain think of things in a different way even if it's just going for a walk the answer might come to you if it's you know going and spending time with your family going to a workout class going and cooking dinner like making you will not be able to perform as well as you think you will if you're not taking care of yourself and you you know 
you might have to find better time management skills and it might be hard to like do everything you want to do but if you take a little bit of time at least every day to do something for yourself or something that is not work it will help i think also like my colleague who i mentioned at the time steve eater he's like one of their top investigative journalists but he also has a really balanced life like he works a shit ton like i'm not saying he doesn't work like he still works a lot but he also like every morning goes on a walk with his kid and walks the dogs drops her off at daycare you know he has to leave at five to pick her up sometimes from daycare different things like that and so he's really good about um having non-negotiables of like this time is family time and i'm not going to work and i think setting those boundaries can be helpful too um especially like when when you hit a dead end sometimes the best thing you can do when you feel like you don't know what to do you need to like get a different perspective like you need to like also like put it down and come back to it later um because sometimes you're so it's like a neural pathway thing sometimes you're so stuck in one way of thinking if you just sit there and try to think about it more you're not going to think of new ideas so yeah yeah thanks for that and so that's an answer to robari's question there about the dead end right like what do you do when you uh, when you hit a dead end um yeah i i I have um an example from so this is going to sound dumb but just bear with me for a second folks when you hit a dead end, um, I take a page out of uh, a video games. I play a lot of video games, all right? That's, uh, that's my hobby. And whenever I'm playing a video game and I can't beat a boss or like I get to a part of the game where I, like I just, I'm not advancing, the move is to just do something completely different. Just like do something that you would never think like, okay, I'm, I'm always going right at the beginning. That's not working. I want to go left. Like, yeah, going left is, is stupid. It's not going to work, but I'm just going to try it. And if you force yourself to, to do something different, that will often like lead to a, a, like you overcoming the dead end. And I think the neural pathway thing that you just mentioned, Brenna, is kind of about that, right? Like if you're at a dead end, just like change your surroundings. As you're saying, like go for a walk, I don't know, just do something different. And then that hopefully will hit a neuron in your brain that will go, oh, like you should do this instead of that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry for that, <laughs> maybe not so helpful tangent. Um, no. Let- we, we have, um, let's see here, let's, let, we probably got a, a, a time for uh, one more question. Um, and, then, uh, and then, Brenna, can you stick around for a couple more minutes or maybe answer in the text if we, um, if we have more questions um, that we yeah. uh, can get to? Yeah, thanks so much. So here's, this is from yeah. Gillette. Hello, Gillette. Thanks for coming. And the question is this. Um, thank you so much for a frank chat. Um, as, as a female journalist, everything that you've said resonates with me, is what Gillette is saying. And Gillette asks, do you have any suggestions on how to stay up to date with new open source tools? Yes, don't. Um, <laughs> what I mean is that you're not gonna um, like get like if you're just trying to stay on top of things and trying to make sure you know all the tools and no matter what, you're not like that's not a recipe for success necessarily because you don't you're not using them or you don't have a reason to use them versus when you get a task right if you get a task and you know you need to find something then when you have a deliverable for it or something that you are searching for then stepping back and being like okay what tools could i use for this and then going and looking for the new tools like having a reason to use a tool is going to be a much better way to stay up to date and to look for something like stopping yourself for every investigative task and being like Am I doing, am I using, do I have all the things at my disposal that I'll need to find this well and quickly? Um, that is usually when I'll take a beat and try to look at what new tools I could use. But I, I, I don't, I think it's like a, a little bit not a bet, the best use of your time to just be trying to collect and know all the most up-to-date tools just to know them. 
and, and one thing I wanted to say was at 7069 WRKI, I'd seen your comment about um, your son being a police officer and how your article, the article kind of made you some type of way about that. And I think that's fair. And like, you know, I, I'm sorry you felt like that. I do think that to be clear, um, the article was not intended to place the blame on police officers who are going out to work every day and trying to, you know, like, protect people. But what I think that the fall of officer created jeopardy on, it is not at all squarely on the police's shoulders. It's on the larger department in general for not training them well to not do that. Right. Like that is not it is not this like easy cycle of blame at all. And it is much more nuanced. And I, and I hope the article reflected that. But if uh, maybe it didn't. And so um, but I, I do appreciate your comment. And I saw that. Great. Thanks so much for that, Brenda. Do you want to do, let's do one more. Let's do one more question. Um, and this yeah. is the final one for sure, folks. This is from uh, Robari. Robari's asking, how much do you rely on intuition when you find a subject that you're interested in? So how, how does intuition play into the life of an open source researcher? Oh, God. I mean, it's hard because there have been times where my intuition has been totally right and totally wrong. And there's also been times where like, I have not had a moment to be like, ooh, I think I should do this just because it would be a good story. And I'm more like, oh, you know, I'm going to take this phone call just to make the extra phone call. I don't want to do it, but I'll do it type thing. And then I find a really good story. So um, I think the part about intuition that is important, and I think a lot of times people equate intuition with excitement. And I think those two things are different. Like if you if you are excited to look into something more, that's great and you'll have the motivation to do it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have this intuition or this idea to, like that it's gonna pay dividends or that you have a good compass for that. But I think the better barometer for intuition over time is being able to try to strike that balance of knowing what is, an, what's the most efficient thing to do in that moment. Um, like, is this going to be, you know, useful to you? you? Are you working smart and not hard a little bit? Um, so yeah, those are my initial thoughts. Brenna, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Uh, and again, we really appreciate your time and all of your expertise that you've shared with us, all of your experiences. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much, Giancarlo. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. I just want to say before we finish, folks, if you're still listening, make sure that you go to select your roles, the channel, and select the event notification role so that the next time that we have a stage talk uh, with another great guest like Brenda Smith, you will not miss it. So that, again, is go to the select your roles channel in the server info and uh, click event not notification so that next time you'll be notified of the event. Brenna, again, thank you very much for coming. Uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. <laughs>